Well, Merry Christmas Eve, church. Before we get to the message this afternoon, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are glorious, and we need you always. And we thank you for giving us time this afternoon to gather in light of your glorious plan of redemption and how it is that you sent your Son into this world. You're the only eternally begotten Son to be sin for us and go to the cross and take the penalty that we deserve so that we may have new life in him. We pray for understanding right now as we go to your word and that you would help us to have worshipful thoughts this Christmas Eve and tomorrow Christmas Day. Everything is because of you, Lord. You have made us new creations, new creatures, and we pray that you would cause us to never lose sight of you or to never lose the wonder of the cross, whereby you reconciled us to yourself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a, a true joy and blessing to be able to have this extra service together on Christmas Eve. And I say that as, as, today, especially because it's one of those years in which Christmas Day falls on the Lord's Day, meaning that we get together two days in a row, which I think gives us a very unique uh, twofold focus for tomorrow and for the holiday. So let me say what those two focuses are. Number one, for tomorrow, we get to experience and have those regular gospel benefits that were won for us in Jesus, his death, uh, through his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation put before us on the Lord's day, which of course is the day that we meet because that is the day that our Lord rose from the grave. But also because it's Christmas day, we're made to especially think of that necessary event that is Jesus's birth, where he came to be the last Adam, or the second man, in which he would live a holy and a righteous life and go to the cross as our substitute so that we can enjoy reconciliation with God and every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which are the things that we regularly speak of on the Lord's Day. We wouldn't have the latter, which is reconciliation and salvation, without the former, Jesus' birth and the incarnation. And truly, Jesus was born into this world not by accident or by a chance, but for the intent, purpose of, and by the foreknowledge and the plan of God to become obedient to the point of death, as the Apostle says in Philippians 2. And secondly, I hope that the opportunity to have a Christmas Eve service followed by the normal Lord's Day service will serve to reinforce and remind us that Christmas is really supposed to be a worshipful time. It, the Lord's Day service, I hope tomorrow, will remind us and, reinf and reinforce in our minds that Christmas isn't just about getting caught up in the busyness of this season. Uh, it's hard, or it's not hard to get lost in the consumerism of the holiday. It's not hard to be confused by the syncretism of our culture and with what Christmas proclaims, or even to associate the day with our personal trials and hardships. But I hope that having a service on Christmas Eve, and then following that up with an observance on the Lord's Day, the normal observance on the Lord's Day, will help us to remember that Christmas is in fact about Christ, and that our whole lives as Christians is to be one of offering up gifts of sacrifice, praise, and worship unto God our Father. And because we have been brought near and into this gracious covenant with God, we are given over to worship. And Christmas should be something that causes us to worship. And think of what Christmas proclaims even. 
You know, I suspect that for, for many, this would be easy to forget, especially with just all of what comes along with the holiday in itself. But even for those who are Christian, um, the purpose, the main issue of what Christmas is about is, is sometimes easy to overlook. And there are many things that we could say about what Christmas proclaims. But for this afternoon, I want us to think about what is the most profound thing about what Christmas proclaims. And that is that God, the eternal specifically the eternally unbegotten Son of God, that He took to Himself a human nature, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the phrase, uh, God in the flesh. That's not stupidity. That's not crazy talk or an impossibility. But that's what actually happened, and that's what was necessary for our salvation. God in the flesh. That fact is, is profound. God who is a spirit and does not have a body like men, who has no beginning, who existed for eternity, enters into time, the Son, for the intended purpose of being able to suffer and die. And he took to himself in that a human nature. The Nicene Creed says this, it says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. He's speaking of Jesus' deity. The fact that the Son is God. He is equally as much God as the Father is God, as the Spirit is God. And friends, if we think that Christmas is simply about spending time with family, about giving and receiving gifts and spreading holiday cheer, those are all good things, of course. But if we think those are the main things, we've utterly missed the point. Very God of very God, light of light, who for us, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us. That is what Christmas is about. That is where it's getting us to. And we need to remember the weight of Christmas. All the time, truly. And certainly, though, at Christmas, when so many other things are prone to make us forget, that the Son of God took on flesh, and He did, and in doing so, did he in no way lose or forfeit his divinity? He didn't become less than God. But we may properly see him now as the God-man, and there is a foreshadowing of this all, all the way back into the creation story. Now, I'm not speaking about Genesis 3 and the fall, and what we call the Proto-Evangelium, but I'm referring to something before that, actually. So if you have your, your Bible... You could open up to the very first, or you know, after the table of contents, very first book in your Bible, Genesis. There's a, a foreshadowing of the work of the Son of God within the creation account that God reveals to us. This essentially, really, I think we can't look at it as creation's Christmas story. We'll be in Genesis 1 and then John 1 for the most part, but Genesis 1 to start. So the reading of God's Word beginning at verse 1 in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, and there was a morning, the first day. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Now, there's a lot that we could say about uh, these five short verses, probably two full sermons easy. But for our time, I'm hoping to show us that from the very first things expressed in Scripture, from the very first page of Scripture, from the very beginning of the creation account itself, the coming of Christ is foretold or foreshadowed. Genesis 1 begins by asserting the reality that everything exists because God desired it to be so. It's, his, it's by His will. It's all according to His pleasure. In the beginning, God created. This isn't laborious work for Him. It doesn't cause Him to, to be tired or to need rest. And He certainly could have done it all in an instance. But He chose to do it in this way and to tell it about it in this way for a reason. It's all by God and it's for God. And so Herman Bavink would go on to say that God is the sole, unique, and absolute cause of all that exists. And we're, we're seeing that expressed here in the first words of Scripture, that everything comes about from what we call divine fiat, that is by divine command. It's the power of God on display, and so He brings that which exists which isn't eternal, into existence. It's the same thing that we see in the New Testament with Jesus in those events in which he, um, that he performs certain acts that testify to his deity. When he calms the storm, when he raises the dead, when he heals or when he casts out demons, it's all done by what we call divine fiat, by divine command. It's with authority. They are commands that, that can only be given because the one who is giving the commands has creative authority. And that's what God is doing here in Genesis 1 as well. Uh, verse 2, we're giving more details. From God's initial act, there is earth. There are waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, we read. And we are given in that a, a glimpse of the Trinity here early on. It's more clear in verse 26 when God says, Let us make man in our image. But we see the triunity of God here in these opening verses as well, uh, with having God mentioned and then also the Spirit of God within the same sentence. And we should be even more convinced that the Trinity, the Trinitarian work of creation is being shown to us here when we rightly interpret the Bible and have what is called a New Testament hermeneutic. When we allow the New Testament, that is, to have priority and understanding because more light has been given to us from God in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. Hermeneutics is just its a fancy word, but it's just simply a term that means the science of interpretation. You, you have hermeneutics in every genre of literature. And so consider Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 through 1.2, perhaps. Uh, long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Yahweh, Father, Son, Spirit, they're all present and active in creation. 
The, the New Testament affirms that for us. The Trinity is in view with creation. But there's something else here. Notice that there is what is called darkness over the face of the deep. And it's not until verse 3 that we read of that divine fiat, let there be light. And then, of course, because it is God, there is light. He said it, and then it happens. In verse 4, there's a separation of light and darkness. And then verse 5 has that familiar refrain, which closes the first of the six days of creation, the seventh day being the day which God ceased from work to institute the Sabbath for mankind. But it's interesting here. What exactly is this light in day one? The source of creation's first light is not specifically stated. And since it's not tied to a illuminating body like a, the sun or the stars, that's going to be in verses 15 and 16 on the fourth day. The text then implies that the light mentioned here on this first day has its source in God himself. There are a few ways that we should understand this. Uh, there's a sense in which light speaks to moral purity, to holiness, and to righteousness. We see this a lot in the writings of John. Light is a, a, is a term to describe moral purity. Uh, darkness, on the other hand, would be iniquity and evil. So perhaps 1 John 1, 5 through 7, John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Apostle Paul likens light to truthfulness. And he, as he even references the creation account in 2 Corinthians 4.6. Uh, 4.6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, what he does is he associates the divine fiat in the work of creation with then also another divine fiat that can only be attributed to the Lord. The work of salvation in the life of a rebellious sinner, just as well as God is the one who spoke light into existence when he created the world, it is God who speaks light and life into a rebellious sinner. It's the work of God. But he takes something about... Notice this. He takes something about the creation of all things and he applies it in a new way. More on that in a moment because it's interesting that the Apostle Paul would take the creation account and then make this statement about salvation. We also see that in a sense, God, in all of his moral purity and truthfulness, he exudes light. It would be right to say that as well. And so in John's Apocalypse, in the symbolic vision he receives in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, and he's speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. He says, And night will be no more. There will be no need of light, or, or the, no need of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that's part of the hope and the promise that we look forward to as Christians. And so this is just a small sample of what the Bible speaks about concerning light in just a number of places. Now, there's much else to consider about light here. Uh, what exactly is it? 
what exactly all went down on that first day, those are important considerations, but not for us to think of together this afternoon. And whatever we may conclude about that light, Christians have come to different conclusions about that. We should note that it is fitting for the works of God that the adornment of the world would begin from light. Since he himself, God that is, is the true light who dwells in inapproachable light, whose most blessed sight the angels who were created in the highest heaven began to enjoy immediately after their creation. And then us also after he causes the light of Christ to shine into our life, giving us faith so that we may behold him as he is. But for this afternoon... What I hope for us to see is how God in creation was foreshadowing the hope of the gospel in Christ Jesus for us, that the Son of God would also come to deal with the issue of darkness, all of, all of this in light of the literal creation of light on day one. That truly happened on the first day, God by divine fiat said that there is, said, let there be light and then light existed. But there is a fuller meaning of the text that we should see as believers. It's what in Latin is called sensus plenior. And what that means is that certain passages at their most obvious level speak of one person or event, but they also then have a deeper meaning hinted at through the specific event in question. In other words, sensus plenior is the term which acknowledges that some historical persons or events in the Old Testament are intended to be understood as more than what they are on the surface, and also pointing then to a greater truth. So, it's a true event on day one, light is created, but we also notice a fuller meaning, and one that is meant to encourage us. That's how the apostles read the Old Testament, by the way. It's known as the apostolic hermeneutic. And as they see Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and since the apostles did it, then that's how we should read the Old Testament as well. A grammatical, historical reading, which means you, know, you note the grammar of the text and the history around it and the context. Those are, that's good and that's important, but if we stop there with interpreting the Bible, we miss out on many of the gems and the things that are meant to encourage us in the Old, Testa Old Testament and to point us to Christ. Why do you think that Jesus, when he was on the earth, could tell people that Abraham and Moses looked forward to his day because it was spoken of it spoke of him and with eyes to see they were able to see and further it shouldn't be a problem for us to think of an allusion to Christ in the creation account knowing of course that you know after creation Jesus came roughly 4,000 years after that uh, 2,000 years after Moses wrote Genesis but it shouldn't be a problem for us, and even though the name Christ Jesus, Jesus, Christ meaning the title Messiah, Jesus being the name that was declared to, give, to be given to him by the angel to his parents, even though there's no mention of that name until uh, the New Testament, it's totally fine and appropriate and right for us to see him being spoken of here in Genesis 1. And again, that shouldn't be a problem for us because we know that Revelation 13:8 says that Christ Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And the Apostle Paul proclaims in Ephesians 1.4 that the elect were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So here in Genesis 1, with God, through divine power, speaking light into existence, he was also helping us to understand what would eventually come to pass after the fall and with his 
plan to glorify himself in purchasing a people for his son. And so for this to happen, the light would have to come into the world once more. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel according to John chapter 1. We'll read five verses here as well. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Most of us are already aware of, I think, of the connection here with Genesis 1, I trust. Uh, John is very intentional. He's led by the Spirit to parallel the opening of his gospel account with the creation account. Both begin with, in the beginning. And John, just like the author of Hebrews, also asserts, he asserts that Christ Jesus was present at creation, reinforcing the idea of the unity of the Trinity. Christ Jesus is, of course, the Word mentioned here in John 1, the eternal Lagos. The Word is both with God and was God. And then, of course, you go down to verse 14, where we read that the Word was made flesh. This is John's version of the incarnation. It's the Christmas story according to John. But there's more here, more here that testifies to the divinity of Christ and the plan of God, which is no afterthought. The sending of the eternally begotten Son of God is the plan of God from the very beginning. Remember, what we celebrate at Christmas is about God coming to be with us, to save us. And that means that we can't forget or even minimize the divinity of Christ at His birth. The divine light that has its source in God on the first day of creation, which is divided from darkness, is pointing us to another light that will come which chases away the darkness. And so the Apostle John, seeing this, says in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The chapter goes on to read that John the Baptist is not the light, but that he came to bear witness to the light, that light, of course, being Christ Jesus, the promised Messiah. The Apostle John sees the connection here between day one in creation and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 1 has its source of light in God, and that light comes by the Word of God. And now we see at the birth of Christ, the living Word of God is the light, and this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. The, the light on the first day of creation was indicative of the presence of God at creation. It was the first word, the word that is indistinct from God's personal presence. And now, in the incarnation, some many thousands, thousands of years after that, 4,000 years after that act, the true light has come, who is the very word of God, not distinct from God, who can therefore alone perfectly explain God, which is what John says in John 1, 9 through 18. Listen to, to verse 18. Verse 18, John writes, 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In other words, no one has ever seen God, the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side, the light, the Word, Jesus. He has made Him known. And why is that? It's because He, Jesus, is God. The God who is at the Father's side is God. And when we think about Christmas, friends, the most important thing that we can think about is this wondrous mystery that God has come to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us, that God is in the flesh with us. Jesus is true God, not different from God in any other sense other than to distinguish His person. Uh, chapter 2, in, the, in paragraph 3 in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, says this about God, speaking about who He is in His being, His essence. When we think of God, He's not a person like us, right? And so how do we describe who God is? Well, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 3, puts it like this. It says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Subsistence, what that is, it's a way of referring to the individual persons of the Godhead while maintaining the unity that saying persons sometimes can confuse. Okay, so it says that, that in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance. Substance meaning his being, his essence, usia uh, in the Greek. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence on Him? In other words, when we think of, when we think of Yahweh, what we think of His being, His nature, or His essence, all three persons or subsistences, they share it exactly. There's no, there's no difference between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Incarnation didn't change that. The human nature of Christ is something to consider for another time. Nick mentioned that I was going to talk about the hypostatic union. I'm not really talking about that, but the hypostatic union is how we explain the convergence of the divine nature and the human nature in one person without mixing those natures or adding or subtracting from either of them. The incarnation didn't change the deity of Jesus at all. But simply because Jesus took a human nature to himself, it doesn't mean that Jesus is less than God or that he's not truly God. At Christmas time, we're not simply celebrating a baby in a manger. This is, a, this is God who does not change. There in, a ba in, the, in the body of a baby, come to save us. God is immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the start of the Old Testament, at the creation account, when light first came into the world, Father, Son, and Spirit are one and unchanging. At the start of the New Testament, at the Incarnation, when the light came into the world once again, 
Father, Son, and Spirit are one and unchanging. The humanity of Christ didn't change His deity. And the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, Father, Son, and Spirit are still going to be one and unchanging. The Son of God took on flesh so that He might reconcile sinners to God. That He, as a true God and, and true man, would be the one mediator between God and man. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow less than God. We can't think that. We can't allow people around us to think that that is what's happening on Christmas as well. Christmas reminds us, friends, that God is offering to us peace. But it's, a, but it's peace with God and through God. Remember the refrain from the angels in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those whose, whom He is well pleased. How is it that God is well pleased with, with people? People who are rebellious sinners. It's not because of our good works. It's not because of our, our best efforts to exercise our faith and believe. It's because He has chosen us in Christ and united us to Him, and He sees Christ's righteousness attributed to us. And so there is peace. That is why the Lord Jesus came as a baby. We can't have peace with God without Christ Jesus. Even our best works are not enough. Our, even, even as saved believers, our best works are not enough to make us to be able to maintain rightness with God. It is only by the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ accredited to us through the faith that He supplies to us that we can have this peace. And Christmas is reminding us of this. Puritan William Gurnell, in his well-known work, The Christian in Complete Armor, he said, It is hard to decide which is the greater wonder for God to offer peace or for you to reject it. To, to reject it is amazing, certainly, but many do it. But church, remember, every Christmas, remember what it took for God to offer peace. It was the plan of God from the start of creation, before people were even created, before the fall even happened. On the very first day of creation, God was foreshadowing the coming of His Son to redeem His people. It's a great mistake to think that God in the Old Testament was harsh and mean, but now in the New Testament, He's kind and gracious. No, He is, he is the same always. And the Messiah who has brought peace and was promised, and He was actually foreshadowed from the very beginning. That's the height of love. And that hasn't changed, and that won't change. God is just as loving in the Old Testament as He is in the New. And Christmas, friends, is about the plan of salvation and seeing the only begotten Son of God being made man. That there, as a baby, still fully divine, He is the Word become flesh. He's born to the Virgin Mary, at, and He's born at a relative of Mary and Joseph's house in Bethlehem. He is the divine Son of God who came to reconcile us to God through His substitutionary death and His victorious resurrection. This Christmas season, let's remember that Christ Jesus isn't in a manger. He's not on a cross. He's not in a tomb somewhere, but He is exalted on high, and He's reigning at the right hand of the Father, and one day He is coming back for His people, those who He has given peace to. We, we worship and we celebrate the Lord Jesus at Christmas, and He's not an ordinary man. He's the God-man and the only Savior, our God. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we bless your holy name and ascribe glory unto you, for you are glorious and worthy of all praise. We ask that you would help us to read your word rightly, Lord, that we might see your intent in it, your, the divine intent of what it is that is being stated and accomplished. And we pray, Lord, that as we grow in grace in our knowledge of your plan of redemption in Christ, that it would lead us to live lives of greater faithfulness and greater awe of you and in greater thankfulness for all that you do, Lord. Our only hope is you. It is the work that you have done for us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask that you would fill our hearts with joy and worshipful thoughts all the way through uh, tomorrow morning until we may gather again. It is our joy and pleasure to be able to gather and worship you, for you are worthy of it, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.